Amen, right? Well, my girls loved it when I sang uh, last week, so we'll try it. Where I was born was heaven on earth, where Flint River washes that red Georgia dirt. The sun set low and the stars burn bright. That's for you, Trinity. Um, I deep down love country music. And uh, it was, in many ways, the music that raised me. I will say I'm very glad that I never met the music that raised me in any serious way, uh, thank God. Uh, but country music has a way of getting its message deep into the bones of its fans. Um, of course, the majority of country music plays in the shallow waters of life, but most country music fans will tell you that there is a soul in country music that people meet. Uh, the problem is it's usually found at the bottom of life's depravity barrel. One major theme of country music that I love is our theme for the text today. It's this poetic creativeness around the idea of repetition, things being repeated. Uh, country music hits uh, have always turned on the cyclical nature of life, life's constant turning over of things. Um, one song that you heard me sing for you uh, that raised many of me and my teenage friends was a song by Luke Bryan called We Rode in Trucks. Most of you know it. You've probably heard me talk about it. Uh, Bryan reaches into pockets of the South, into small town life in a really big way in this song. In more shallow but true fashions, he sings, there's a lot about life we learned on the bus, how to lie, how to fight, how to kiss, how to cuss. The closer we sat to the back, the smarter we got. We were poor, we were ugly, we were all best friends. 
wide-eyed, baptized, and still wanting to sin. That's a pretty good, pretty good evaluation of Southern life, right? Um, even if you were rich and pretty, that lyric uh, really just put life right in front of you and made you realize some things. Now, still true, but more potent, uh, Brian weighs in on uh, our sermon topic today in the song concerning the danger of repetition, of lessons learned from observing things in this life. He writes a sad lyric for many young boys that you and I grew up with. He says, we thought tobacco and beer in a can was all it would take to be like our old man. But then I saw how much it made my mama cry. And in one lyric, right, I remember many of my cousins, uncles, friends, family who, des who desired to escape that, uh, that lyric about their lives and yet never heeded its warning truly and have repeated the very vicious cycle that Luke sings about. But for Luke, of course, this is heaven on earth for him, right? Beer, back roads, and falling in and out of love numbingly excite him to just keep on. He doesn't get the message. Now, country music has lived and breathed on these examinations of life's vicious, uh, repetitive cycles. Um, it's rare, though, for complete honesty on this topic in an entire song. But you know, in 2012, our last example for this idea, and then we'll preach, I promise. It came to the top of the charts when a lady named Casey Musgraves wrote a single hit called Merry-Go-Round. Uh, it became popular. And one only needs to read the lyrics to realize that Casey had given a creed and a mantra to the plague of monotony in small town life. She sings this, verse one. If you ain't got two kids by 21, you're probably gonna die alone. At least that's what tradition told you. And it don't matter if you don't believe, come Sunday morning, you best be there in the front row like you're supposed to. Same hurt in every heart. Same trailer, different park. Chorus, mama's hooked on Mary Kay, brother's hooked on Mary Jane, and daddy's hooked on Mary two doors down. Mary, Mary, quite contrary. We get bored, so we get married, and just like dust, we settle in this town on this broken merry-go-round. And round and round and round we go, and when it stops, nobody knows, and it ain't slowing down, this merry-go-round. We think the first time's good enough, so we hold on to high school love, say we won't end up like our parents, tiny little boxes in a row. Ain't what you want, it's what you know. Just happy in the shoes you're wearing. Same checks we're always cashing to buy a little more distraction. And then she sings the chorus again to close. Pretty devastating stuff, right? People love preaching, don't they? Even if it's not from church pulpits. Casey Musgraves exegetes her upbringing and writes the pain of millions into tiny metal boxes called trailers. Now, all this begs the questions. What about the Bible, man? <laughs> We're here to hear an exe exegeting of the Bible, not the culture. Look, I say yes, we are, and I agree. But I want you to see something in the power of country music, even if you hate it, that actually belongs to God. Um, and has been misappropriated to the masses on iPods and iPhones and streaming services for decades now. I want you to understand the gravity of discipleship that takes place from the wrong lessons learned from your own history or the publicized histories that culture presents, uh, country music being one of them. You could plug in any other of your favorite hits. I want you to grapple this morning with the reality that nothing is new under the sun. Nothing. And these examples show that perfectly. You see, nothing felt more novel or new to me and my friends as we drove around the back roads of Hudson, Texas. Nothing felt newer and more alive and invigorating than we rode in trucks by Luke Bryan. But I'm telling you right now, nothing could have been further 
from being more repetitious and common. Nothing feels more new and novel and interesting and devastating even as your pain is articulated in songs like Casey's Merry-Go-Round, where they're nailing the story of your life to the wall and it's a vent. But I'm telling you, there's nothing new in it. There's nothing new or novel in that new hit. There's nothing new under the sun. And yet under the sun, it often feels so new, so real, and so novel. But the Bible comes in to dispel that notion today. It comes to us today to set our feet upon the right path to start living. And in order to live, you have to be free of sinful gain. In order to live in this life, according to the Bible, you need to be free from the need for the next big thing. You need to be free from the stress of the monotony. You need to be free from the bondage of repetition that can destroy you. But how does the Bible do that? Well, that is the question we must answer. If you don't want to avoid the merry-go-round of life that Casey Musgraves identifies, let me be clear, then this sermon is not for you. And you will continue uh, on it until you die. But if you're here today and you're willing to spill it, you're willing to wipe out by jumping off the merry-go-round disaster of life under the sun, and I want to invite you to do so. What's amazing about the preacher in Ecclesiastes, in a very honest fashion, he'll let you know you may have a broken arm, you may end up with skint knees or a face full of sawdust, but the injuries you sustain, in the end, the promises of God can break the cycle that you face, the never-ending cycle of nothing new under the sun. Today's text raises three major questions, major life questions, and helps us answer them. Here's what they are. The first one is, what is the purpose of life on earth? What is the purpose of life on earth? Secondly, what is the pattern of life on earth? And finally, what is the problem of life on earth? Life's purpose, life's patterns, and life's problems. Before we take on the first question, I want to quickly help you get your bearings concerning what you just heard read. I encourage you to visit the website uh, on our church if you want the full sermon where we did an overview last week of Ecclesiastes. It will help you. But we need some bearings to begin before we really answer this first question, what is the purpose of life on earth? You see, these are big questions that we're asking today, and, and they are present in our text. And just like we covered in depth last week, Ecclesiastes is a book dealing with the major themes of life, and it promises to offer wisdom. Life under the sun is addressed. The author of Ecclesiastes invites you to spend time examining the things that we do in this life before we all die. And the main thing we need to know about this passage and all the passages is the context. Now, I want you to know there's really two major errors that we can fall into as we study Ecclesiastes. I want to, as a, as a way to give you a good background about this, the kind of the last time I'll do this, I want to give you both of them. You see, the first temptation we have with this book, when we come to it to preach it and learn from it, and let it bear on our souls, is that we may actually conclude that all of life is meaningless. That'd be a folly. That'd be a foolish thing to do because that's just not the case. Nor does the preacher believe it. And yet, he'll stay there. Week in and week out, he will stay there for good purposes, to uncover the truth of God. But we must remember, this book is not going to call us to something called nihilism. It's just a fancy way of saying rejecting religious and moral principles in the belief that life is meaningless. What's the point? He's not calling a set level of depravity. Nor is he trying to do what a lot of modern day, you know, existentialism does. That is, it emphasizes that the individual person is free and responsible to do what they want with their 
will because life doesn't matter. These are not the things he's talking about, and we need to avoid that. I mean, a simple way to debunk this in your mind is if this guy is saying over and over again that everything's meaningless, well, that means that truth is meaningless. But he's using absolute truth. So if anybody ever tells you, yeah, absolute truth does not exist, why well, believe them? That's a truth for them to claim. And so it's the same kind of like help as we study this. Even though he'll say things are meaningless, it doesn't mean that. We can't go that far. But the second temptation, however, is what has plagued the church the most about this book. The second is to swing to the other end of the pendulum with Forrest Gump and say things about this book like life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. And there's always good to be plucked out of life, right? It's kind of this lottery of good. See, Ecclesiastes is a little bit more harsh than that, and we need to sit with that reality. Life is like a box of chocolates, but some of them contain strychnide and arsenic. <laughs> and if you get the wrong one, it will kill you, right? And so this is the argument of the preacher, the king in Jerusalem. And it's long, and it will weary you, and that's because you need to let these hard realities work deep into your bones, okay? It's not a top, we can't just rush to Jesus, now, Ecclesiastes gets us to Jesus, but remember, every week, beloved, this, uh, this book is going to call you to see the worst so that you can really, actually hold on to and believe the best. Churches steer away from it because of this reason. We don't want to do that. Now, bearing those things in mind, we ask our question with the preacher. What is the purpose of life? Preacher points out two things. He points out gaining in this life. And then he also points out glory in this life. Look in verse 3. In verse 3, he asks the question, as you heard Kelly read, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? You see that word gain? It's the word yitron in the Hebrew. And I don't often do words, but this one was very important to me because this word shows up nowhere else in the scriptures. It's a business term and it's unique to Ecclesiastes. And so we should not dismiss it for that reason. The temporal gain of a man in this life is actually a significant thing to all of us. If we can gain something, something from our hard work, like results or profit or advantage or what comes of, that's another way to translate this, then we're doing good, right? Well, he actually says the opposite. He asks the question, hey, what do you get? What do you actually get? And there's an implication here. And what's amazing is you may have heard something similar in your New Testament. You know, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ showed up and asked this question. He said, what does it profit a man if a man gains the whole world and yet he forfeits his own soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul, Jesus says in Matthew. Now, Matthew, or Ecclesiastes is never quoted directly in the New Testament, but it is alluded to. And this is one of the few times it is. And so I'm asking you the question of Jesus and Koheleth, this preacher this morning, what do you get out of life? If you try to gain it, if you try to live for gain and toil under the sun, what's a man to get? Now, of course, Christ is clearer than Koheleth. And ultimately, our study of, of his position, you know, the preachers, will lead us to see Jesus's. But the point for now is to show us that this question matters. It matters. And the possibility of falling victim to it wrongly is a very real temptation for all of us. Is the purpose of life to gain something? If all is meaningless and if everything is hebel, that is this, you know, the breath uh, that is fleeting, then what is life about? What does man get out of this life? Well, think about it like this, very simply. If man sits still and doesn't move, you know what he'll do? He'll die of thirst and hunger. But if he gets up to eat and drink, what will he discover? 
He'll discover that food and drink are not just as plentiful as he had hoped. There must be some gain. And so there must be toil. Which brings us to that second point uh, that the, the preacher's making here. You have to toil. Toil means exert oneself. All activity under the sun is some sort of exertion. Whatever activity you do, I'm talking about this afternoon, beloved, in the rain. I'm talking about all five years from now when you decide to take on a task or whatever you're setting your mind and hands to, it causes you to put forth effort. And you're asking yourself, what's the purpose of this life? You can take any activity and the preacher is going to say that it happens differently to us than it does the animals, doesn't it? Let me give you an example. Let's talk about chopping wood in the heat of summer in hopes of preparing for the needs of winter. If we take two men in this effort, we give them an ax and some wood, and let's say one of them with grumpiness and anger, he beats the wood as he also looks to the sun beating down on him and his glistening body. And with no joy, he works through the difficulty of his labor. But another man has the same wood and a different mindset. And however hard it is, he works knowing with joy that he's doing something that will provide heat for him in the winter. Both will have warm fire in the cold of winter, won't they? They both will. But me and you, when we hear that, you know what we do? We pity the former, right? And then we're envious of the latter man. We pity the former man because he had a horrible, miserable attitude under the sun. But we envy the second man who saw the good of what it meant to do that work through difficulty. You see, this is what the preacher is asking the question. He's, imply, he's wanting to imply, you understand there's a little bit more here than chopping wood and everything you do. But his implication is this. Once you realize that, realize that it's nothing. What you would term as good or bad, man gains nothing from all his toils under the sun. Now, the implication is important to point out here. Because we're asking, what is man's purpose in life? Well, listen to me. It's not to just gain a profit arbitrarily. Gains for gain's sake are not good. You see, there's a deeper psychology going on here that the preacher is very rashly proclaiming. The, the greatest toiler among me and you today, okay, working his fingers to the bone, seemingly seems to gain some things, doesn't he? Maybe he gains respect from others. Maybe he gains power over others in promotion. Maybe he gains distance from others. He's able to put himself away from struggles. He gains more wealth and money than others. He gets more opportunity than others. It opens up more freedom to him than others. But what does he really gain in all that? All those categories are valuable, but they're only valuable under the sun because they're always and only connected to the implications to this answer. It's the question, and the answer is nothing. He actually gains nothing. You know, there's many rich men that sit high in their high castle or their high office, miserable and tempted to jump from that height to their own death. Why? Because they've gained nothing and gaining everything. The car of your dreams, listen to me, the food of your dreams, the job of your dreams, the family of your dreams, the travel of your dreams, whatever your dreams are, the preacher says, wake up from those things. This book starts this way and ends this way. And one commentator I loved began his commentary on the book and he dedicated it in the very first pages. And he dedicated his entire thoughts to follow. And this is what Doug Wilson wrote in the front of his commentary. This book is dedicated with a great deal of warm affection to every fool in Christendom. 
Because that's who we are. We need to wake up from the lie that there is something to gain from this life under the sun. We need to realize that we need to look beyond and above the sun. We need to look to Christ. We need to look to the warnings of this preacher. Because Christ is asking us the question, what does it profit you? If you gain the world, you get everything you want in this world, and you forfeit your soul, what is it worth? Gain is not the answer. Instead, glory is. Look in verse 4. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Now, how does this verse compare with the main idea of mankind not gaining anything for all of his toils? Well, it puts the perspective of years and years of life now and generations of people and the cyclical nature, that's the rotating nature of this life we live. Let me give you an example of this from history. You know, the women of the roaring 1920s, they knew themselves to be the most progressive force of women's rights to ever live. But if any of them would have picked up Plato, who lived approximately 2,500 years prior and read his work, The Republic, they would realize that the convictions they claimed in their movement were rooted 2,500 years ago under the sun in somebody else's idea as well. Plato advocated that, that women possess natural capacities equal to men for governing and defending ancient Greece. A generation came and went in Plato's day, and 2,500 years later, the promise of novel thinking proves, as we study it today, a long mirage, or at least a forgotten entity, something gone in the long game of life, and yet something new to us. No one can compete with the logic of time in this regard. You see, every generation subsequent to Adam and Eve's state of perfection, when the fall happened, every generation since has been forced into this real conclusion. You and I are but a tiny sliver of faction of time with our mere existence. We are firmly fixed on this big blue ball. And you know what this blue ball will do? It will outlast all of us. God knows each generation. He knows them personally and perfectly. And he has never once been surprised by any generation more than another. He speaks of his interaction with us on this timeline of generational language often. But one of the most clearest places is when he gave the law to Moses and the Israelites. You know, in the Ten Commandments, one of the things God said, he said, you shall not bow down and worship idols, right? Do not bow down and worship them or serve them, the Lord says. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing steadfast love, get this, to thousands of those or thousands of generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. That's Deuteronomy 5. God will reside as Lord over a thousand generations. Can we fathom such time? You know, a generation's about 25 years. This would be about 25,000 years for God, which is as nothing to him. The idea is not the exact number, beloved, but here's what it is. The sheer size of time. No one outlasts the everlasting. And that's what the preacher's saying. When he says the earth remains forever, it's a significant statement at this point in the book. The, the preacher is comparing the life of your parents and your life and your children's life to come and their children, which you may not see. And he's saying there's one reality to deal with. All generations are existing in this same space, this perishable same world that will outlast them. Now, I don't know you if I, or excuse me, I don't know 
If you've ever wasted time on Google Earth before, if you've ever been on Google Earth on the internet, it's pretty fun and it's gotten cooler. Google Earth even now has a feature where you can click roll the dice and it'll spin our big blue ball around and zoom you in on a satellite level and show you some cool fact from history. It's pretty amazing. But when I do that and when you do that and you look at Google Earth and you stop and you realize how large, how magnificent, and how vast the Earth is, and you consider who forged this mass of rock and life, you consider the one whose words brought mountains and streams and oceans and plains and rainforests and deserts and ice and canyons into existence. You will take notice of the dot that you are, the speck on the grand scheme of everything that's happened and happening. And you would prioritize the personal gains of your feeble heart, beloved, against that? You would personally prioritize turning some profit in a business deal or raising a perfect child or excellency in the properties that you purchase, your enterprises. I mean, we would, whatever we would build for ourselves is promised to be covered in vine and dust a century from now. And yet the earth won't stop for anyone. Here's the idea. Loosen up, saint, right? Loosen up. Turn loose of your grip on gain and get, right? And instead, let your hands look at the glory of God. Give up the gain and get the glory. What is the glory of God? Well, look, the earth is just sharing a characteristic with God here in verse four, isn't it? And it's actually God's because God outlasts even the earth. Psalm 104, 31. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. He looks on the earth and it trembles. He t who touches the mountains and they smoke? God will smote a mountain that has outstood me and you and every generation prior to us. There's one purpose in this life. What is it? Well, it's a starting point. It's an enterprise building place. And the, perfect, the preacher knows it. He knows the fear of the Lord is the understanding of who God is. And he knows that God will outlast us because God remains forever. So he is to be the recipient of all our glory. It's a simple question. What is the chief end of man? It's to glorify God and it is to enjoy him forever. But listen, uh, beloved church member and any friend here, uh, for us, we are stubborn creatures on this earth. Um, can I tell you that in love this morning? I hope so. You are a stubborn creature. I'm a stubborn creature right here with you. And when it comes to the Southern United States and it comes to the Bible Belt culture we live in, there is a pervasive type of stubbornness that persists and plagues us. And it pushes itself upon us all the time. And it demands a horrible Christian flair to the ideas of God being worth all of our glory. It threatens it. And you see, the preacher, he's grounded. He's rooted and he's satisfied in what I just said about God outlasting us because he's old and he's wise and he has realized the danger of his own assumptions. There is no cultural Christianity in his day plaguing him anymore. He's seeing things clearly. He knows that to presume we rightly understand our place on this celestial ball is the quickest way to get prideful, is the quickest way to get haughty, and is the quickest way to be misunderstood. He knows that we need to be slow. You know what we need? We need to take in again and again and again the lesson that we think we know. That's the kind of people we are. Now, country music gets that. That's why hits keep rising to the top of the charts. That's why it's my introduction. 
because it's just another person blaring the same song in a different way so that we can hear it. Well, the preacher of Ecclesiastes is blaring to you this morning. What is the purpose of your life? You know it? You know it's God? Okay, good. Listen to me. Even the demons know that. Even the demons know that he is God and he deserves glory and they shudder before it. But be honest, do you? Is every waking second consumed in your life with crumbling before the thought of a holy and glorious God? Here's the truth. I know it's not. I know mine's not. Friend, I know the answer this morning and so does the preacher. And so we need to step in further, further into his argument. That's where he goes. He says, this is the purpose of life, right? Glorify God. But what is the pattern that this life offers us? We've seen the purpose, right? The question is, can we know it? Well, there's either chaos or there's creation. That's how creation works. You either see creation in two forms, okay? It's either chaotic or it's good. It's creative. Um, It's a wonderful thing. Well, he doubles down on the chaos. In five through seven, you heard him talk about the sun, right? Sun rising, sun setting, the winds, and the waters, the water cycle. Here's what's happening in the text. Pattern, pattern, pattern. Repetition, repetition, repetition. Again, again, and again. Life under the sun and all its vanities, all its meaningless, can it be understood in light of the sun itself? Look at the sun if you want your answer. The sun waits for no one's plans, and it doesn't listen to us. But rather, it is fixed for certainty, and it will continue its long circuit, beloved, long after you and I are dead. Um, Yet we chase it, don't we? We chase the sun, and it wearies us. Pink Floyd understood this. Uh, Pink Floyd um, almost parallels Ecclesiastes in their song, Time. Um, Time, the lyrics of it says, and you run and you run to catch up with the sun, but but it's sinking, racing around to come up behind you again. The sun is the same in a relative way, but you're older, shorter of breath, and one day closer to death. That's Pink Floyd weighing in with all that British wisdom. This is a slow but chaotic view of the sun that they've painted, and it's the despairing view that the preacher wants you to see. It's his purpose. He uses the word for hasten, and that amazes me. He's basically saying, look, the sun is panting. The sun's pestered by its constant life that it lives. It strives on in its pressing fashion. The preacher has a certain bleak outlook on the sun, The monotony of the sunrise is really bright, but it's blinding, actually, to the mind's eye. That's what the author's saying. It's like, yeah, it comes up, but it stumps me. It wearies me. It reminds me of my own weariness. You're like that. Charles Dickens said of the sun, the sun himself is weak when he first rises and gathers strength and courage as the day gets on. You wake up every day just like the sun, don't you? Weak. Lord, another one. How can I do it? Just like the sun, the wind is the same way. It follows a cycle, right? And we know it. Uh, If it was the sun east to west, now he gives us other directions. Did you see that? He says, okay, if the sun is, we know is east to west, now what's the wind doing? Well, it's coming around and it's going uh, from the south and going around to the north and around and around and around it goes. And where it stops, nobody knows, right? This pattern is to show us there is no stopping the wind, And there's not certainty of what the wind will do, is there? Yet it's reliable and it blows in the seasons. Think about hurricanes. Here me and you are in yet another another prime example of hurricanes, of a season that we knew was coming. 
And though this season may produce a megastorm that descends upon the Gulf in a, in a new way on the Gulf and it destroys another city, here's what we know. It, it keeps happening. It's been happening since 1900 that we know when we started recording it, and it's not going to stop. Why? Because it's on its way. What about the water cycle? It rained on us this morning. The preacher wants you to look at it too. Another pattern on earth with a certain reality found. Notice what he said about the sea. It's like, although the sea is constantly being filled with water by endless rivers that dump all of their deposits into it, clouds form above the sea. They go back over the top of the mountains and they rain and the rivers flow again. The sea doesn't swell. It doesn't get bigger. Round and round the earth spins and every cycle in nature is a planned chaos. At least that's what he thinks. It's a patterned weariness. And this is the perspective of the wise? Let me tell you, it actually is. I want to ask you this morning, as we're asking this second question, what do the patterns of this life tell us? Okay, there is an answer. Verse 8, all things are full of weariness. It's getting more exciting as we go. A man cannot even speak of it. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear filled with hearing. The preacher sees in these wonderful lessons in nature the grim outlook of weary living for me and you. For him, there's nothing in this understanding of nature that is particularly moving to be personally applied to mankind's predicament and to help us. Let me ask you this, beloved. Have you ever been to a place of beauty in nature? Have you beheld the earth? Have you ever been lost in a moment of captivation? thought about the power of water as you watched it, or the wind, or maybe been on a beach and the mesmerizing, hypnotic effects of the ocean's waves. You sat next to the babble of a brook, or maybe stood a little bit scared in the torrent rage of a river. You ever felt a gentle breeze that's filled with honeysuckle and smelled it? It's pretty amazing. Or maybe you've, in fear, looked on at tornadic-type uh, wind or hurricane-force trauma. All of these beauties, they beheld you, didn't they? They held on to you, right? And there was a certain point where you realize, I am caught up in this moment. But you know what happened? You eventually will get tired of them. You live in Oklahoma long enough, and that big loud siren of a bell that tells you a tornado's coming, it just doesn't scare you like it used to, right? Until all of a sudden, your house and home's destroyed, and now you're scared for a few more years. And yet, you will slip back into the understanding that what was once beautiful and amazing, it's just doing its thing. It's just a cycle we love the pine curtain, right? But then they block our view of the fireworks with it, and we're weary, right? I mean, this is nature. One moment out there in the woods, look at this bull pine, a powerful example of God, and I'm amazed by it. A couple weeks later, I can't see the fireworks. What the heck? <laughs> Same creation. Here's what the preacher's argument is in this pattern question. What is the patterns of life? I love what Ian Provon says. He asks this question of you. Why do you imagine that a surplus for the puny individual that you are is a realistic aim. When creation itself, in all of its awesome mystery and complexity beyond moral grasping, when creation is not ordered to produce a surplus through its toil, but its content, then why do you think that you can somehow gain something in this? In other words, why do you chase that which even nature has modeled is not needed or possible? 
I mean, do you and I think we can gain more than the winds and the seas and the streams and the sun have gained in their constant fixed place? No. Here's the thing, you can't outlast them either. So we have to learn from them. We must learn contentment in this life. We must learn under the sun how to be content. And that is what these three analogies from nature are telling you. Gain will be empty and worthless under the sun every time. It's just chaos when you treat it that way. When you treat it as something to just get you, to benefit you and you alone, your words will confirm it. That's what he says. You cannot speak enough about the repetition of life to understand it on your own. He says your eye will see it and it will never be satisfied with what it sees. You are a hungry creature. Your appetite will never be satisfied. If you try to hear it, you'll hear about things and it will be filled in your ear, but it will never actually be filled. Instead, what it will do is it will weary you. That's the chaos of this monotonous life. That's the power of patterns and that this life can be a drain. Let's zoom in and take one example to finish off the chaos for good here. Uh, With my wife's permission, I asked her to help me understand something about the cyclical nature of her life as I see it concerning a very grievous pattern that we face constantly, laundry, okay? I mean, days come and days go, weeks pass, whether we're out of town on a trip or in the swing of school and work, and guess what is always there? Laundry. It's on the couch, it's on the table, it's on the treadmill, it's in the dryer, it's on our bed, (laughs) it's always there. I asked Brittany this week, I said, how do you deal with it? How do you not end up crushed under the weight of laundry? Now her answers show us how often we misunderstand the patterns in our life. Remember, I got her permission to preach like this. We embrace often in the chaos of the constant how uh, things that are honestly a violent, a violent treatment of our souls. So I asked her about laundry, and first she said, you know, most of the time she just ignores it, right? Her constant own power to ignore it. I just do it, and then I do it, and I do it, and I do it because I have to, and there's no meaning to it. Now, I don't have to tell you, you don't need a degree to tell you, you keep doing something like that, that's a vanity. That's a poor way to do it. But secondly, I, I probed and I asked, well, what about else? Well, she said sometimes... She said that she will remember at times that others have more laundry than her, or even still others have less than her. And what a blessing or what a curse it is for her to to do it. But even that understanding of the pattern will prove to be vanity, me and her concluded. Or she will look to the reality that she's blessing others. She's taking care of herself and the kids and me, which is true. And I'm thankful to wear these clothes this morning and not have to preach in front of you naked, right? But she admitted that this is not enough either. You know why? Because often me and our kids are ungrateful. And the only comment that we ever make about it is, why isn't it done? Where is this thing? Mom, where's my shirt? Still a vanity. Or often she rests in the power of just getting it done. That is, completing it and feeling good. Like there is a finished task. And that pile that was there, it's evaporated, it's gone. But then, dryer's done. More to come. Still a vanity. All this, and get this, after seven years of laundry as a mother, and she's exhausted all of her options. Brother, sister, this is just laundry. I'm literally just talking about the one pattern of your life so that you don't smell bad when you walk around in your daily living. I know you feel this. Think of your life. How often you grab this created world in some way to make sense of the chaos. 
And whether you wake up to build something or you wake up one morning to prepare something or to teach something or to take care of something or someone or to plan a trip or to go on a trip or to pay for something here or there, or in my case, to preach something every week, you'll do it and then you'll need to be done. And you know what? You'll have to do it again and again and again and again. That's right. And Monday always comes, right? You're just like these patterns. You're just like sun, wind, and water. There's a created chaos that you know. It can be a torture. But here's the lesson you learn in the pattern of life, beloved. You are not like the wind. You are not like the sun. You're not like the water, are you? You know why? The wind and the water and the sun, they never complain about what they do. They're never bothered by it. They're tr truthfully, I mean, they never grow weary. The sun obeys God perfectly every day. It gets up. It enjoys its run. David said it's like a, it's like a bridegroom leaving the chamber of his new wife. That's the sun. It's a delight to our eyes in its wake and in its sleep because it teaches us something about ourselves. You see, we all want the peace that the brook and the stream gives. We want the power of the mountains to stand before their creator and do exactly what they're supposed to do, but we don't have it. See, the purpose of our life is to glorify God. And the patterns of our life tell us that we don't do that so well. We're to glorify God by gain, not gaining the world, but gaining him. We're to be like creation, not embrace the chaos, but enjoying it. Well, that brings us finally to our final point, doesn't it? Our last question. What is the problem with life on earth? What is it? Okay, here's your sub points. The, the problem is novel. Now, novel, the word novel, N-O-V-E-L, it has two definitions, even though it's one word. Welcome to English 101. That's confusing for every other person in the world that doesn't know English. But we know it, and so it's a good, it's a good tool, all right? But two definitions will carry us through our final point together this morning. The first definition of novel is where we'll begin. See, the first definition I want to give you of novel is as an adjective, something being new or unusual in an interesting way. That's what novel means. Something new and interesting. Something exciting. This is the topic that the preacher turns to in his conclusion. Look at verse 9. He makes a bold statement that nothing is novel. It's the title of our sermon. He makes a bold statement. He says, verse 9, what has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new. Nothing is novel. Nothing is truly interesting or unusual to be considered a brand new thing. Nothing, preacher? Yes, that's right, nothing. This is the conclusion we're to come to? Nothing's new? That can't be what the author wants us to do with it, right? He says that everything in history, everything that's happened and is done, it's therefore, you know, there's no need to hope or look for something that someone beckons to you to consider as new. Well, me and you hear that and we disagree, right? I mean, surely me and you disagree with the preacher here. Well, look, he, an he anticipates this. Look in the first part of verse 10, verse 10a. He asks a question then. He says, okay, come here. Is there a thing of which it is said? See, this is new. This is where we want to be, isn't it? We want to believe there's something new. We doubt the preacher. We press on in life wrongly because we, being the dumb creatures we are, seek new things under the sun. We are desirous creatures. 
We fill our lives with what hope is new and satisfying. Now, examples abound, don't they? I mean, consider the earlier idea uh, of the verses talking about the mouth, the eyes, and the ears. I mean, just think about your mouth, okay? You fill it with new food. You love a new food truck in town because it's a new flavor, right? You eat it. A new phrase can fit in your mouth. You can pick it up like a new motto. I mean, the world loves this. Every activist is looking for that turn of a dime phrase that he thinks changes things, right? We find something quickly and we become preachers of it, whether we boast of conspiracy and chemtrails and 5G towers, right? Or maybe we pick a political position and we say, hey, which lives matter more than others? Or in the church, we open up our mouths in hopes that we're trying to talk about a new thing. And we put a red X on our hands and we put 116 on our T-shirts. We put WWJD on our wrist. We speak loudly and we fill our mouths. But we're not satisfied and no one wears WWJD bracelets anymore. Except one brother. I do know one brother that I saw the other day had one on. I mean, our eyes, just like our mouths, are the same way. Our eyes are hungry for the promise of a new movie. That's why trailers are so exciting. Oh, another, a novel idea on the screen. The next episode on Netflix after that cliffhanger or Hulu or Disney Plus. But they are not new, nor are they filling our souls. See, is this a new thing? You've seen that movie? Even in the most drastic ways, we do not use our eyes to look on the newness like we used to. Think about your own children if you have them. You don't look on your children the way you once did at times. The new wears off, even in the most ghastly ways, I'm afraid. You see, the inconvenience of disobedient children will compete with your eyes as you grow, and you will not see the little one that once laid breathing on your chest for the first time. Instead, you'll see an inconvenience. Why? Our eyes are not satisfied. They're not. Neither is our mouth. Neither is our ears. Our ears are filled with storytelling often. We love our favorite music on Spotify. We fill them with podcasts. We boast in the radio. We have a new circle of friends that will talk to us a certain way. We get to tell old stories with the family. But let's remember, old family memories are always repackaged, right? Eventually, you get tired of dad making the same old joke. But then you kind of think it's funny because it's a dad joke. But then he keeps doing that, and then you're tired of it again, right? I mean, this is what we hear and what we speak. The preacher quickly punches the air out of your doubts. He asks the question, see, does someone say, see, this is a new thing to satisfy your life? Verse 10b, it has been already in the ages before us. Verse 11, look with me. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things, yet to be among those who come after so the preacher concludes this problem of the novel, the new thing, by showing that even the largest patterns of history are full of proof that nothing is new. It's just people living. It's people doing what those did before them, forgetting what the people before them did, dying, and then more coming to do it again. Now, one example in my reading this week that I, was, I, I found was the idea of the discovery of the new world. You know, Columbus sailed the ocean blue in... 1492, right? Yes, he did. And he found the new world, the new world, right? Well, look, he found it, but it wasn't new. I mean, of course, we know Native Americans proved that immediately wrong, but even Western expansion history proves it. As we study closer, you know what we learn about Columbus? He was not the first European to set foot on North America. Philip Ryken uh, notes, in those days, Bosque fishermen were already crossing the Atlantic for food to fish for cod off the coast of Newfoundland. 
newfound land, Newfoundland, right? It's fun. Not that they told anyone about it, of course, because who's going to tell about a secret fishing spot, right? But the merchants of Bristol, England were more vocal. They wrote Columbus after his triumphant return to complain that he knew perfectly well that they had been to America before him. This is to say nothing, however, of, the, of Leif Erikson and the Norse explorers who reached the New World 500 years before all of that. Nothing's new. Okay, nothing's novel in this sense, even in history. I mean, how many times have you heard this? History repeats itself. I mean, that's every high school history teacher ever, so pay attention, right? History repeats itself. Don't fail in it, only to realize history repeats itself. <laughs> this is a problem, isn't it? It's a personal problem. It's a global problem. The novel isn't novel at all. The purpose of life to glorify God and enjoy him forever, it is inhibited by this problem, believing something to be new when it's not. The patterns of life, okay, for you to get chaos instead of creation uh, happens and it seems to encourage this, okay, because you want something new. The problem of life that nothing is new under the sun seems to create in us a sense of utter depravity. Let me tell you this in closing, good, good. I hope you feel the weight of what I'm saying. The second definition for novel will help you. You see, first we said that novel is defined as something being new or unusual in an interesting way. And that is novel as an adjective that describes your life. But remember this, the person who committed adultery, who went in away from his wife to work, was bothered by things and how they were going and the difficulty at home and the frustrations of life, never ever once thought that that little hello or that batting eyelid or that tip of the hat or, oh, thank you so much, or that encouraging word from that coworker would have ever spilled into the adulterous affair that he has. But if you trust the novelty of something new, it just caught my eye differently. Oh, that was just, that was just a little thing. And I kind of want it. Before you know it, that understanding of the novel will consume you. It will destroy you. But there's a different understanding of novel. Okay, the other definition comes to us in the form of a noun, and it is this. A novel is a fictitious prose. That's a narrative of considerable length and complexity. That's probably how you feel about the sermon at this point, right? Considerable length and complexity. But listen, novels portray characters and usually present a sequential organization of action and scenes. Another dictionary adds this, that it's a story. Novel is a story typically representing character and action with some degree of realism. Now, I haven't talked to you about novels. I don't know if you've noticed that. I've talked to you about a lot of other lame sauce like avenues of, of getting entertainment in our lives, but not novels. You see, a story is a novel, and you know what a novel is, you understand the novels, uh, that novels are otherworldly. Man, when you read a story, when you read a, a story, you escape into that world, right? You step into Narnia because the air is better there. Aslan the lion is on the move there. You run the ridges of the lonely mountains and you delve into Mirkwood with Gandalf. Why? Because Bilbo and Frodo must destroy the one ring. You feel it. You sit with the despair of Orwell's communism on the animal farm. And you also realize that the worship in the black congregation in Harper Lee's To Killing Mockingbird is very real. 
And you realize in that novel that you need something that can overcome the madness of the false worldview of communism or the slanderous nature of racism. But why do we do this? In many ways, it's part of the problem itself, okay? I will admit this. I mean, nobody gets saved by reading To Kill a Mockingbird, do they? You see, part of the problem is novels themselves. Novels boast of some new world, of some place where you can escape. You can, go to Harry, you can go to Hogwarts and practice spells, become a wizard, and whisk all your problems away. But in the sense I, uh, I'm trying to make, the idea of something being new is not always bad. And I think a good novel raises our awareness. It brings us almost to the top of what we really need to see as new. It can raise your interest. You see, the author of this book, Ecclesiastes, he's steeped in the understanding of who God is above the sun. We've spent a lot of time in this sermon underneath it, but we're going to finish above it because it's pretty amazing. You see, he knows that God is sovereign and big and looming and in control. He knows and he says that there's nothing new under the sun, knowing something about what is above the sun and what has been promised to us who are under the sun. Nothing is new until it is truly new. So don't bother with actual novels. Pray and hope for something beyond the monotony, something beyond your perceived heaven on earth, as Luke Bryan called it. We need heaven to come to earth. We need someone to ride the merry-go-round of life and not get thrown into the dirt every time. We need them to teach us how to enjoy that metal death trap of the merry-go-round of pattern. The problem of our life is certainly seen in the cyclical nature of things. And I hope that this has been made abundantly clear by the preacher to you today. So what is the answer then? Is the unhappy note of how he ends in verse 11, how we will end Ecclesiastes today? Yes. <laughs> It's how we end here until next week when we open this book. But for us this morning, we must grab together the truth about what God has done to make all things new, truly new. Nothing new under the sun. Yes, that's true. But listen, beloved, the author of Ecclesiastes knows above the sun, a plan was formed to make all things new. The purpose of life, the patterns of life, and the problems of life all have their answer in Jesus Christ. The one who asked us earlier, what do you gain? If you gain the whole world, but you forfeit your soul. The one that asked that is the one who came to save that very wearied soul. Christ is the newest, most novel thing ever to be. The thing that is and the thing that is to come for any and all generations. The novel that God has penned in creation or that you refuse to see in the laundry. Okay, or in this discovery of the new world or in Harry Potter's castle, or Casey Musgrave's lament about sin, all of them are pointing to the greatest story and the greatest storytelling God, the God who never, ever wearies or gets, good, gets tired about telling the good news. I mean, as constantly as the sun and the water cycle, the gospel is enough. It's enough for the beat down person, like at every level of their life. I mean, God really did sit above the sun and he really contemplated it not a thing to be equal with his father. And he really did submit himself lower than the angels, those cherubim and seraphim that we sang together this morning, cry out holy. Lower for a moment and was he made by them living the life that you and I can't. Never mastered by the pattern of monotony. He mastered it. He demonstrated with his life a perfect balance. 
He was never distracted from his father's will. And he bore the sins and iniquities of his people by dying for them on the tree. He became a curse so that you and I might become the righteousness of God and have meaning under the sun. He laid in a grave dead. And yet even that could not contain him for his purpose and his pattern fixed the problem of our life, death. The one thing that looms over us the most in this book, the promise of this book is death. The promise of Jesus is life. And to us, we let the gospel become old. We let it become old, especially in cultural Christianity or common Christian thinking. Often our gospel is like a rotten apple in the core. It's shiny and nice on the outside, but when it comes to a real problem in life, it's just semi-sweet to the touch and rotten on the inside. There's no real nourishment. Instead, the true gospel that we preach goes beyond a topical explanation of your life, right? I mean, the real gospel goes beyond the confidence of just one decision for Jesus to believe on him. I mean, it goes into all the decisions you make therein after. I mean, your purpose and the pattern in your life and the problems you have, they only find their hope in Jesus. We can glorify God now and we can enjoy him forever. And we're enthralled and enjoy the patterns of this merry-go-round life when we're in Christ. We enjoy the sun when we're in Christ. We dance in the windy rain. We chop wood with the, with the happy man, not the angry man. We swim in the beautiful mountain streams, and we stand differently in, in their presence. We have a joylessness that our lost neighbors look in on, and they don't know. They don't know why we do laundry like we do, but we let them know. My wife's ultimate conclusion was that, by the way. It's only going to be somehow to God's glory for Christ's namesake for me to fold this underwear. But he is enough. I hope you do laundry differently this week. I, I hope you drive your car differently this week. I hope you, man, I got to do this and I, it's, I realize how long it's been. I hope you see your kids play differently this week because it's not because of Christ. If it's not because of him, hear me, it is a vanity. It is to be avoided. There's nothing new under the sun, but listen to him who sits above the sun. The second, uh, it's the last chapter of the Bible. He has something to say from his throne. In Revelation 21.5, Jesus says, John saw and, and wrote, and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. That's amazing. That is the promise for us who can't find anything new under the sun. That's poetic ending, but I love what it says next. He also said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Because guess what? You'll forget them. You'll forget them by this afternoon, I promise. But here's the good thing about our God. He reminds us. He reminds us that in our vanity under the sun, he's with us. He runs this race, and he will help us to finish it. Uh, Jesus' labor, you know, it's, it's, it's easy, and his burden's light. And so me and you, we get to respond in song together, declaring that we must come to him as weary sinners in need of him. And so song in a minor key at the end, but it's Ecclesiastes. It's also just good. It's good for you to just kind of take a minute before we pray together and say, yeah, I'm coming to Jesus again. Let me pray for you as you and I do that together and we'll respond. Pray with me. Lord, we do respond now in prayer and we thank you, God, for life under the sun. Lord, we are so perplexed by it, God. We, um, we, we, just, we just feel like things are new and they're not. And we need to be made new by the one who sits on the throne today and says, I'm making all things new. So God, if any of us not be in Christ, God, Lord, I pray you will show us the decrep decrepit, failing nature that we live in. 
and you'll help us, God. Help us to get our eyes above the sun again and to come to Jesus, come to the one who's weary and heavy laden to his arms, and may we perish there if we perish anywhere today, God. And so God, help us to sing this with a fervency and believe the prayers we pray as we dismiss and go home in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.